Hello and welcome to the Verity Podcast for Thursday, January 25th, 2024. The only podcast that's separating the fact from the narrative spin. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Eric Steiner. Here's a look at today's top stories. Trump wins the New Hampshire GOP primary. 65 Ukrainian POWs are killed in a Russian military plane crash. A judge rules that Trudeau's use of the Emergencies Act was unjustified. Turkey's parliament ratifies Sweden's NATO bid. The U.S. strikes Iran-backed militias in Iraq. Arizona's GOP chair resigns amid bribery allegations. The UNHCR says 569 Rohingya died at sea in 2023. An Oregon jury awards $85 million to wildfire victims. Measles cases surge in Europe. And a study finds that going to school improves life expectancy. What if you go to school your whole life? What if you're a teacher? (laughs) Trump wins the New Hampshire GOP primary. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, CBS, Independent, Al Jazeera, and Financial Times. Former President Donald Trump won the New Hampshire Republican primary on Tuesday, reaffirming his lead for the GOP 2024 presidential nomination. Trump won soundly over Nikki Haley, inching closer to a face-off with the likely Democratic nominee, President Joe Biden. This comes as Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who withdrew just prior to the New Hampshire primary and endorsed Trump, mustered only 1% of votes cast. With 95% of the vote counted on Wednesday, Trump was leading Haley by 54.4% to 43.3%. As Trump has escalated his rhetoric against Haley, Haley also reasserted that the race is, quote, far from over. According to exit polls by Edison Research, Haley beat Trump among self-identified moderate Republicans and independents. Haley also polled higher among New Hampshire voters, with college degrees, by 56% to 41%. Though Trump extended his lead in the race by winning the New England state's primary, Haley's campaign expressed optimism ahead of the February 24th South Carolina primary, a state where Haley served as governor. Eric, thank you for the facts on our first story today. We're going to start our first round of narrative spins with an anti-Trump narrative provided by The Guardian. Trump is riding high on toxic euphoria that could fizzle as his legal woes continue to mount. Despite the endorsements of former rivals Tim Scott, Ron DeSantis, and Vivek Ramaswamy, Haley still had strong gains with GOP moderates, independents, and those with college degrees. It's not time yet for Haley to give in, especially with the South Carolina primary a month away. Let's find out what the pro-Trump supporters are saying with the narrative coming from New York Times. If Iowa and New Hampshire haven't shown Republican voters which way the wind is blowing, nothing will. Even in South Carolina, Nikki Haley's home state, Trump is polling strongly. Haley should see the writing on the wall and throw her support behind the former president's momentum in a show of unity. Trump is on track to soundly defeat Joe Biden in November. And the nerds of the Metaculous Prediction community are going to throw in their statistics-based nerd narrative. They think that there's a 3% chance that Nikki Haley will be the Republican nominee for the 2024 U.S. presidential election. I hope they're optimistic about her home state. I would think so. Russia accuses Ukraine of downing a military plane, killing 65 Ukrainian POWs. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, TASS, NBC, 
Associated Press, and Ukranska Pravda. Russia's Defense Ministry on Wednesday accused Ukraine of deliberately downing a military transport plane carrying 65 Ukrainian prisoners of war. It confirmed it would be the deadliest Ukrainian act inside Russia's internationally recognized borders since the war began. Belgorod Governor Vyacheslav Gladkov said that there were no survivors aboard the Illusion L-76 that crashed in a village in his region. He added that there were 65 POWs, six crew members, and three security staff aboard the flight. The defense ministry statement said the plane was, quote, performing a scheduled flight when Russian radar systems, quote, observed the launch of two Ukrainian missiles toward the transport vehicle. It further alleged that Ukraine was aware the plane was taking that route ahead of an agreed prisoner swap. It also claimed that Ukrainian leadership had been aware that Ukrainian servicemen were being transported by military transport aircraft to the Belgorod airfield for a prisoner swap. However, it added that an earlier agreement had arranged for the exchange to take place in the afternoon at the Kolodolovka checkpoint in the Russian-Ukrainian border. Video of the crash on social media showed the plane falling toward a rural snowy area before erupting into a ball of flames. Ukrainian officials did not immediately confirm or deny Russia's allegations about the crash, but said they are looking into the details. Earlier in the day, citing a source in the country's armed forces, Ukrainian news outlet Ukranska Pravda reported that Kyiv was responsible for the incident. However, it later amended its report to say that a different source failed to confirm this information. Adam, thanks for the update. In Ukraine, our first spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from Associated Press. Despite Russia's accusations, exactly who was on the plane and how it went down are yet to be independently confirmed. Various events in this war have prompted a raft of conflicting accusations, and especially amid a sensitive story such as this. It's important that evidence is presented before any conclusions are reached. In the meantime, Ukrainian officials have said they are looking into what happened on their side and will comment in due course. That's going to be followed up with a pro-Russia narrative provided by TASS. This is an insane act of barbarism on the part of Ukraine. Not only did the nation sabotage sensitive prisoner swap negotiations, they violated their bond and obligations to their own citizens, showing an utter disregard for their lives. Actions such as these seriously call into question whether Russia can ever enter into any security agreements or negotiations with Ukraine. Metaculous Prediction Community has a nerd narrative. It says there's a 38% chance that there will be a large-scale armed conflict in Russia before 2030. According to a Canadian court, government emergency powers in trucker protests are not justified. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian, Reuters, CTV News, New York Times, and CBC. A federal court in Canada found that the Canadian government's use of the Emergencies Act during the 2022 trucker protests against COVID health mandates was, quote, not justified in relation to the relevant factual and legal constraints that were required to be taken into consideration. Justice Richard Mosley further ruled that the government's actions were unreasonable and violated Canada's Charter of Rights and Freedoms. In response, Finance Minister and Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland said that while the government respects very much Canada's independent judiciary, it disagrees with the ruling and will be appealing it. She claimed the decision to invoke the emergency powers, which ranged from making arrests to the impounding of trucks to freezing the funds of suspected convoy financiers, was to protect public safety and national security. 
In early 2022, truckers, in response to COVID vaccine mandates, jammed downtown Ottawa for three weeks and barricaded some critical U.S.-Canada border crossings. On February 14th of that year, the federal government invoked the Emergencies Act for the first time in history. The invocation of the act was previously upheld by an Ontario Court of Appeal judge last February, a public inquiry that was mandated by law. That judge ruled the use of the emergency law was acceptable given a breakdown of police responses and limited political coordination. The Canadian Civil Liberties Association and Canadian Constitution Foundation, alongside two individuals whose bank accounts were frozen under the emergency law, filed this latest case in federal court. Justice Mosley agreed with the plaintiffs, ruling that while, quote, there was a rational connection between freezing the accounts and stopping the convoy's funding, the economic orders were overbroad. Public Safety Minister Dominic LeBlanc also cited the discovery of, quote, two pipe bombs and 36,000 rounds of munition as reasons for the federal government to step in. But Mosley said those threats should have been dealt with by provincial and local authorities. Eric, thank you for the facts on that story. We're going to start the spins with a left narrative provided by ABC News. If the trucker convoy wasn't a threat to national security, then nothing is. Not only did this far-right reactionary operation threaten the Canadian economy by blocking border crossings consisting of 25% of U.S.-Canada trade, but some of the truckers had large amounts of weapons and ammunition. The previous public inquiry was correct, and hopefully, the next appeal will come to the same logical conclusion. We follow that with the right narrative coming from the post-millennial. This ruling is a win for democracy and the first step to holding Trudeau accountable. The invocation of the Emergencies Act was completely unconstitutional, while protesters were merely exercising their rights to oppose extraordinary public health mandates. The government responded with an assault on civil liberties. Labeling all protesters far-right reactionaries is a deliberate distortion of the truth to justify an authoritarian crackdown. And the nerds are going to chime in with their opinion. They think that there's an 82% chance that Pierre Poilievre will become Prime Minister of Canada before 2026. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. All I can say is uh, eastbound and down, loaded up and trucking. We gonna do what they say can't be done. We got a long way to go. And we got a short time <laughs> to get there. So uh, it's eastbound and let's watch old bandit run. <laughs> all right. Thank you, Adam. Turkey's parliament approves Sweden's NATO bid. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Le Monde, Al Jazeera, New York Times, Voice of America, and Associated Press. The Turkish parliament approved Sweden's NATO membership bid on Tuesday by 287 to 55, with four abstentions, a decision that concludes the second step of Turkey's ratification process and brings the Nordic country closer to joining the military alliance. Swedish Prime Minister Ulf Kristersson, NATO Secretary General Jans Stoltenberg, and U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan have all publicly praised this outcome, which leaves Hungary as the only NATO member that hasn't given the green light to Sweden's accession. Yet President Recep Tayyip Erdogan still has to sign the bill into law to end the 20-month-long process that has frustrated not only Stockholm but also many of Turkey's allies in the West. It remains uncertain when Turkey will file its formal approval with NATO and when Hungary, whose parliament is in recess until February 15th, 
will complete its national ratification, meaning that there's no guarantee that Sweden will become a NATO member state anytime soon. While Ankara had blocked Sweden's accession to NATO due to alleged ties between Stockholm and the terrorist-designated Kurdistan Workers' Party, or the PKK, as well as to press the U.S. to agree to sell F-16 fighter jets to Turkey, Hungary claims that Sweden has long been hostile towards Budapest and demands steps to improve relations before ratifying the protocol. Sweden decided to break with its security doctrine of more than 200 years of military non-alignment following the outbreak of the Russian-Ukraine war, asking to join NATO in 2022 along with neighboring Finland, which was granted full membership in April of 2023. Adam, thank you for the facts. The first spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from modern diplomacy. Sweden's eminent accession to NATO and Finland's approval last year are key diplomatic wins for international security. Peace is attained through unity and strength, so adding two historically neutral countries from Northern Europe to the military alliance will go a long way toward deterring aggression. With Russia on the offensive in Ukraine, all hands must be on deck to stop further attacks. While some countries may want to keep out of the conflict, modern defense requires a unified front, and NATO is the main protector of the global order. And RT is going to counter that with the establishment critical narrative. NATO claims to seek peace in Europe, but the fact is that the expansion of the aggressive military alliance is only destabilizing the continent. NATO has essentially become an anti-Russian alliance that seeks to provoke Moscow and create conflict. However, NATO is destroying the concept of neutrality and non-interventionism by calling on all members to pick a side in conflicts that have nothing to do with them. NATO is hostile towards its perceived enemies, and Sweden is actually inching closer toward provoking conflict, not deterring it. And the nerds from Metaculus are saying there's a 99% chance Sweden will join NATO before 2025. News from Iraq as U.S. strikes Iran-backed militias. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, France 24, New York Times, CNN, The National, and The New Arab. The U.S. on Tuesday launched airstrikes on three facilities associated with Iran-sponsored militias in western Iraq, allegedly due to escalatory attacks on American and coalition forces in Iraq and Syria. According to Pentagon Chief Lloyd Austin, the, quote, necessary and proportionate precision strikes targeted the Kataib Hezbollah militia group, the Hezbollah brigades, and other Iran-aligned groups in Iraq. Furthermore, Austin said while the Biden administration isn't seeking to escalate the regional conflict, the White House is, quote, fully prepared to take further measures to protect its troops and military facilities. Separately, the U.S. Central Command said unilateral airstrikes were carried out on Kataib Hezbollah's headquarters, storage, and training facilities in retaliation to its attack on al-Assad Air Base, hosting U.S. forces in western Iraq. Meanwhile, Iraq condemned the U.S. strike as, quote, an aggression and blatant violation of Iraqi sovereignty. While Baghdad accused Washington of stoking regional tensions, Kataib Hezbollah vowed to continue its attacks in support of the people in Gaza. Since the Israel-Hamas war began on October 7, 2023, over 140 attacks have been launched on U.S. and coalition troops in Iraq and Syria. Eric just laid out the facts. We're going to start the spin with a pro-establishment narrative provided by CNN. 
The precision retaliatory strikes on Iran-backed militias in Iraq and Syria are the latest proof that the U.S. is serious about protecting its troops and military installations in the region. It's not Washington that's playing with fire, but the Iranian regime using its proxy forces to wage a hybrid war against the U.S. and Israel that threatens to plunge the entire region into chaos. U.S. troops were sent to Iraq at the request of Baghdad to help fight the Islamic State group, and the U.S. will not hesitate to defend itself against any aggressive forces in the event of further attacks. The establishment critical narrative is coming from al The U.S. attacks in Iraq and Syria underscore the weakness, rather than the strength, of the U.S. military as it's unable to prevent the axis of resistance's retaliatory strikes. Moreover, Washington's pointless military actions only address the symptoms and not the cause of escalation, which lies in Israel's catastrophic war against Gaza's population. Add to this that the U.S. occupation forces are illegally in Syria and are officially no longer welcome in Iraq. The resistance will thus continue until the U.S. and the Israeli regime opt for peace over domination and violence. And the nerds have another opinion. They think that there's a 10% chance that the U.S. and Iran will be primary actors in opposite sides of a war before 2025. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. Arizona GOP chair resigns after Carrie Lake's bribery allegation. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC. Daily Mail, and Independent. Jeff DeWitt on Wednesday resigned as the chairman of the Arizona Republican Party, following an audio leak of a conversation he had with U.S. Senate candidate Carrie Lake. The audio appears to show DeWitt offering to pay Lake not to run in 2024, but the now former GOP chairman claims the tape was selectively edited. In the audio, which was recorded at Lake's home on early March last year and recently leaked to the Daily Mail, DeWitt can be heard saying, quote, there are very powerful people who want to keep you out of the Senate race. Then he says that people, quote, back east asked him if there were any, quote, companies out there or something that could just put her on the payroll to keep her out. Following the release of the audio, Lake, a staunch supporter of Republican former President Donald Trump, who's the frontrunner of the 2024 GOP presidential nomination, said in an interview that someone, quote, who's corrupt and compromised shouldn't be running the state GOP. Lake is a former news anchor who lost her run for Arizona governor in 2022, but like Trump, refused to concede. She previously alluded to her interaction with DeWitt while speaking at the Conservative Politician Action Conference, where she told the crowd the chat, quote, proved how disgusting politics is. Adam just presented the facts, and now the round of spins begins with a right narrative coming from the post-millennial. Finally, Lake has specifically called out DeWitt and forced the left-leaning mainstream media to cover this corruption after her accusation was previously covered as though it was a conspiracy theory. Lake brought receipts to show what elites in D.C. are willing to do to maintain their grip on power. This is why the U.S. Senate needs someone like Lake. Right narratives are typically followed up by left narratives. I have one here provided by Arizona Central. Lake, who often wears a wire for some inexplicable reason, is clearly guilty of entrapping DeWitt, whom the MAGA wing of the GOP has been trying to oust. Lake's too much a devoted champion of another Trump and his conspiracies to be trusted. No one should fall for these bad-faith actions. 
The nerds at Metaculus say there's a 10% chance that Lake will be the 2024 Republican nominee for vice president on Election Day. According to the United Nations, hundreds of Rohingya died at sea in 2023. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, UNHCR US, and Reuters. The United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, or UNHCR, has reported that 569 Rohingya people, the mostly Muslim minority in Myanmar, died at sea last year while journeying across the Andaman Sea and Bay of Bengal to Southeast Asia. The hundreds of deaths are among the almost 4,500 who fled overcrowded refugee camps in Bangladesh in 2023. According to the commissioner's statement, the number of reported missing or dead is now, quote, the highest since 2014, when the total reached 730, with the number in 2023 rising more than 200 compared to 2022. It added that some 66% of those embarking on these deadly journeys are women and children. Over 1,500 of those fleeing to other parts of Asia landed in the north of Indonesia's Sumatra Island in November and December last year, though they faced more backlash than previous waves of migrants. Indonesian villagers and soldiers pushed their boats back into the water. The UN Refugee Agency called on, quote, regional coastal authorities to take urgent action to prevent further tragedies, arguing that saving lives and rescuing those in distress at sea is their duty under international maritime law. This follows news from January 7th that a fire broke out at a Rohingya refugee camp in southeastern Bangladesh. Officials said the blaze destroyed roughly 800 shelters, left around 7,000 homeless, and damaged 120 facilities, including mosques and health care centers. Eric, thank you for the facts on that tragic story. We're going to start our spins with a narrative A provided by the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The lack of international commitment to accepting the Rohingya is disappointing. It's particularly troubling coming from member states of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, which seem to be dealing with growing Islamophobia and anti-immigrant sentiment. Even large Muslim-majority countries, including Indonesia and Malaysia, are dealing with this. If a small nation like Bangladesh can house many thousand Rohingya, larger states can too. Narrative B comes from Crisis Group. This crisis has been caused by the decrease in global aid for the Rohingya, which dropped below 500 million last year. Global bodies should work to collect more donations, and then they can bolster efforts to repatriate these people in Myanmar safely. This may take some time because Myanmar is still a dangerous place for them, but it's positive that countries like China are leading negotiations. And the Metaculous Prediction community think that there's a 50% chance that Myanmar will no longer be classified as being in a state of civil war by December of 2028. Pacific Court is ordered to pay $85 million to Oregon wildfire victims. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, Statesman Journal, and Reuters. Nine survivors of the deadly 2020 Oregon wildfires on Tuesday were awarded $85 million by a jury. The fires, one of the worst disasters in the state's history, claimed nine lives, burned over 1.8 square miles, and destroyed some 5,000 buildings. Pacific Corp., the utility being forced to pay the award, said it expects to be responsible for a little less than $80 million after post-verdict rulings and insurance payments. The jury made its ruling after a, quote, mini-trial that lasted around two weeks, the latest in a series of trials to determine compensation for about 5,000 victims of four megafires, 
the Santiam Beachy, Echo Mountain, South Oban Chain, and the 242 fires. Previously, a jury in Multnomah County faulted Pacific Corp. for the ignition and spread of the fires and awarded $90 million to 17 survivors. Pacific Corp., which said it plans to appeal this most recent award, could be facing billions in liability after upcoming trials conclude. Adam, thank you for the facts. The round of spins is going to begin with Narrative A, coming from Wildfire Today. Regardless of its reasoning, Pacific Corp. took the wrong approach to the 2020 fires, which were among the worst in Oregon's history. It was negligent when it didn't de-energize the power lines, even after it was warned by officials and emergency responders. Every penny Pacific Corp. pays to the victims is justice being served. We're going to continue this spin with a narrative B provided by the Bulletin. Hopefully, Pacific Corp. will not only compensate victims of the fires, but also learn what it did wrong to avoid more damaging incidents. But it's going to take more than just the utility acting differently to limit wildfire damage in the face of climate change and the historic suppression of fire. The government must beef up its fire response teams and make sure they're on call all year round. Scapegoating a single utility provider without addressing the systemic issues is not a long-term solution. The nerds of Metaculus say there's a 50% chance that wildfires will destroy a total exceeding 10 megahectares of global tree cover in any year by the end of 2030. In Europe, the WHO issues measles warnings as cases surge 30-fold. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Bloomberg, Guardian, BBC News, Euro News, Independent, and Arab News. The World Health Organization, or WHO, issued an urgent warning on Tuesday after Europe recorded an increase in measles cases in 2023 by a factor of 30. Between January and October last year, 40 of the 53 countries in the WHO Europe region reported more than 30,000 cases compared to 941 measles cases in all of 2022. According to the WHO, 40% of cases were in children between 1 and 4 years old, while 1 in 5 of the cases were from adults who were at or over the age of 20. This, quote, alarming rise in measles cases reportedly led to the deaths of 5 individuals and 21,000 hospitalizations. The WHO said that post-COVID travel had increased the risk of cross-border proliferation of the potentially dangerous disease, adding, quote, urgent vaccination efforts are needed to halt transmission and prevent further spread. Globally, vaccination rates against measles before the COVID pandemic stood at 86 percent before dropping to 83 percent in 2022. In Europe alone, at least 1.8 million infants missed their measles vaccination between 2020 and 2022. Eric, thank you for the facts. The pro-establishment narrative for this story is provided by The Hill. Measles is a highly contagious virus that can cause meningitis, seizures, and even death in children and adults. While there's no specific treatment for the life-threatening disease, vaccination rates of 95% could stop its spread completely and provide lifelong protection. Undervaccinated or unvaccinated populations risk causing large outbreaks in countries that have historically been measles-free. Public health agencies must heed the WHO's warnings. The establishment critical narrative comes from Breitbart. The WHO in Europe is leading the push with charged calls for, quote, urgent action when it comes to vaccination and other disease outbreak. 
While the measles vaccine may have been an effective treatment for the disease over the past few decades, it's natural for individuals to have questions, especially after the confusing and polarizing COVID pandemic. Medical institutions are poised to address this outbreak, but must be mindful of patients who carry reservations they wouldn't have had a few years ago. And the nerds are on a roll today, Eric. They think there's a 50% chance that the global annual death rate, or per 100,000 people, from infectious disease in 2025 will be at least 102. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. Did you follow that? Yeah, I followed it all. <laughs> in a recent study, education improves life expectancy. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Style, Forbes, and Guardian. According to a new study published in the Lancet Public Health Journal on Tuesday, researchers found a correlation between receiving an education and living longer, with around 18 years of schooling lowering the likelihood of premature death by 34%. The study, funded by the Research Council of Norway and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, analyzed more than 10,000 findings from over 600 published articles from 59 different countries and found that no matter the person's age, sex, background, or location, every year of education reduced the risk of death by 2%. The researchers from the Norwegian University of Science and Technology and the University of Washington also found that not going to school had a similar impact as other risk factors, such as heavy smoking or drinking large quantities of alcohol on a daily basis. While the study found that education yields greater benefits for younger people, it still led to better health outcomes for those over the age of 70. The connections between education levels and lifespan have been studied in the past, but this review is the first to quantify the connection between a reduction in mortality and number of years of education. Thanks, Adam, for the facts. The first spin is Narrative A coming from Forbes. Persistent inequalities in education are not just costing people financially, they are costing them their lives. Closing the education gap globally would help to close the global mortality gap and create a more equitable and just world. With the connections between education and life expectancy now made clear, more work needs to be done to end the cycles of poverty that lead to a lack of education and cause preventable deaths. We're going to wrap up the spin on this story and today's podcast with the Narrative B spin provided by the Harvard Business Review. Although this is an impressive piece of scholarship, the associations described in this study may not be applicable in the future. In recent years, higher education has had less of a predictable impact on future earnings and quality of life, with issues like high student costs and high costs of living putting additional pressure on students and graduates the current education model must be adapted to keep up with the ever-changing workforce landscape. Eric, how many years did you spend in school? I'm still in school, Adam. What are you talking about? So you're going to live forever. Yes. I'm so yes, impressed. Sir. I'm so impressed. Hey, hey, you know what? Join the bandwagon. Let's go. Oh, uh, according to my schooling, I should have died three years ago. Thanks for listening to The Verity Podcast for Thursday, January 25th, 2024. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers, and we figure out which ones are about the same stories. And for each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all the articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. Find out more at verity.news and download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. 
For Adam Clark, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast. Podcast.